Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. International cricket is back. Friday sees England, South Africa, Australia, India, New Zealand and West Indies all back in action as the game gears up for a busy few months of international cricket. I'm Yaz Rana and to preview all that, delve into the BBL's funky new rules and talk about some of the game's fastest ever bowlers is the combination of Wisdom.com features editor Tara Hashim. How's it going, Tara? Yeah, not too bad, Yaz. Excellent. The editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. How's it going, Phil? Yeah, probably better than Taha by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> and the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. How are you, Joe? I'm all right, Yaz. How are you doing? Wonderful. Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, as well as international cricket, this week also sees the long-awaited return of a Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast mainstay segment, the, the moment of the week. Really? Um, the dissenters have had their way. Uh, there's, there's no hard and fast rule for these, um, but to remind listeners of what this was, each of the panel will pick a moment of the week. It's ideally something that's a little bit alternative and not, not something based on, um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't choose Stokes as 135 as your moment of the week, ideally. Uh, Tar, do you want to kick things off? What's your, what's your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week was uh, that clip that went viral of the, uh, the Tottenham players um, playing um, just playing cricket uh, one of those uh, one of those nice moments where you realise that quite a lot of people do actually like this game uh, quality grab from Delhi who's not had a great season playing football I'd also sort of highly recommend reading um, Will McPherson's dissection of the whole video uh, on the Evening Standards website but yeah that's, that's my moment of the week Yaz Excellent I, th- I thought the um, Greg James explained it quite well as well he tweeted that not only has Delhi Ali taken a great catch He's, um, he's asked Sammy to go through various CCTV angles of it and put <laughs> graphics on top of it as well, which, which is arguably as impressive as the catch itself. Um, anyway, there, as I said at the top, there's plenty of cricket to talk about. First up, England's three-match T20I series against South Africa that gets underway tomorrow. It feels like we've talked about the makeup of England's T20I top six in at least half of our last 10 or so podcasts, so we'll do our best not to repeat ourselves. Early this week, England played two intra-squad friendlies. One was a 40-over game, another a T20. Bill, there were quite a few takeaways from those two games, but one of them was that Joe Root is still quite good at batting. Yeah, I mean, hold the back page. Joe Root, still a class cricketer. Yeah, everyone's there. Everyone who's, who's ever played pyjama cricket for England appears to be on this squad. Um, they've, they've kind of combined the ODI and the T20 squads into one 
mush, really. And they've played, two, as you say, two intra-squad games together. And Root's been the standout player. They played a 40-over and a 20-over. And Root uh, has, has sparkled in both of them. Um, he made a 40 and 20-odd balls in the T20 game and a 77, I think it was, in the first game. Over 40 overs. Um, and it's rather befuddled uh, Chris Silverwood's uh, planning for, the, for this mini tour of South Africa because he's now saying that everybody who's here is available. Uh, never say never was his quote. Um, and so while Root is technically not in the T20 side, that question that just won't quite go away, what role does Root have in this team, um, has kind of been brought to the surface again in, in recent days. Uh, he... He probably he certainly won't play the first game. I wouldn't be surprised if we see him laterally in the in the in the three match series. But you know, we'll have to wait and see on that. Obviously, Milan and Roots are probably playing for that one place, and Milan just happens to be the number one batsman in the world, in, in, according to the rankings. Uh, so he obviously has the has the gig at the moment. But but Root really wants this T Twenty shirt, um, and he's been quite open and quite clear about that. I mean, he was even playing for Yorkshire in T20 cricket hours after a test match last summer. Um, he wants to be involved in that World Cup coming up later in 2021. He wants a part of that. And, and from a personal perspective, I would love to see him there. I think he's still a pedigree player. He proved it in 2016 as well. And arguably, his game would have evolved in terms of its creativity and its, and its versatility in the, in the last four years anyway. He's an unbelievable one-day batsman. Uh, 50 over batsman so yeah I'm all for it personally I still think come the come the pressure cooker moments of a big world tournament when it's 150 plays one 145 rather than 180 plays 190 then you want at number three you want an absolute world-class gun player and so so it's intriguing what Root has done here um, and he's made it quite clear where his his priorities lie he wants the lot just like Cody has, just like Williamson has, he wants the whole lot. Uh, and at the moment, he, he's, he's on the outside looking in. But I wouldn't be surprised over the next few months that changes. But there were some other good performances as well, with the ball especially, and, and talking about players on, on the periphery of, of things. Ollie Stone turned up, bowled fast as well. Um, uh, took three, for, three cheap wickets as well in the second game, in the T20 game. So there, there was lots of interesting things happening around this England team. And there's got, they've got six games packed into the next couple of weeks. Staying on route, Joe, how much do you think that the fact that he bowls a bit of off-spin could actually come into it with Moeen's form completely falling off a cliff and Sam Curran doing really, really well, giving England another additional bowling option in those middle overs when they, at the moment, look like they might go in with just one spinner in Adil Rashid? Yeah, I think it could be really crucial. I think I agree with Phil. I would love to see Root in that side. I think class shows in these in these big tournaments, but it was hard to see a route for him, a route for him into the side. But Moen's bowling or his his poor form in general has potentially opened up an avenue for for Root to for do, to do this because I mean Moen's not bowled more than a single over in his last seven T20s. So you could say, well, spin isn't that important in this in this England side at the moment, but we know it will be. We know it will be in India come the T20 World Cup. We know it is in, in T20 in general. So they do need that second spinner. Curiously, they haven't picked one apart from Moen for this South Africa tour. So suddenly, Root in at number three, also bowling a couple of overs here or there, becomes quite a, a kind of tantalising proposition. And, and as Phil says, it's, you're weighing him up against Milan. Well, on batting form alone, it's a bit tricky to pick Root above Milan as it stands. 
But if you throw in a couple of overs of spin, then suddenly it becomes a more even contest. And that's why I think there is everything to play for in, in this series. And I agree. I think in the past, they might not have wanted to get Root involved because they didn't want to muddy the waters. Now, I think it can actually be really useful for them. Mm. And so, uh, Sam Curran had a great IPL, as we talked about a lot on the show. But he did his chances of usurping Moeen for that number seven spot, a world of good in that second warm game. And with probably his, his best, I know it's not an international game, but probably his best performance with a bat for England for a couple of years. Um, well, I mean, if you're picking it just on, on form, then it's quite a straightforward pick. Sam Curran goes in, he's had a brilliant IPL. Moeen Ali's form's been off a cliff, but it boils down to what we've just been talking about with Root, that England will want two spinners. Um, and Moeen, for all that's gone wrong when he's bowling well, when he's batting well, he answers a lot of questions for England. Um, I would, I would pick Sam Curran for this series. Um, I think with Sam Curran, there's always going to be the question across all formats is, I mean, how do we fit him in? But we've also seen across his international career, when you do pick him, he does some sort of job, whether it be with a battle ball. I think, I think Curran's got to basically play every match between now and the World Cup. He's, he's only played a handful of T20s. Uh, internationals. Oh yeah, we saw in the IPL just how quickly his game is coming on. Uh, I think with England, it's particularly the batting they'll be looking at, that that number seven role, which they've had kind of Lewis Gregory's filled it. Joe Denley's done a bit of that. Liam Livingston's being talked about, but I think Curran is is head and shoulders above those players um, and, and has shown what he can do in international cricket in a way that those other guys haven't. So I think that he now deserves an extended run in the sides uh, to show what he can do. Um, coming in at seven and bowling a few overs where he's needed. As, as Phil alluded to, because of COVID-19, England have taken a bigger touring party than they'd normally bring for a short white ball tour. As a result, there are a couple of guys there who we haven't seen play for England for a little while. Jake Ball is one who is in the squad after an excellent T20 Blast campaign. Another is Ollie Stone, who from the stream, he looked like he was bowling very, very well. And it's interesting on Stone because two years ago, when he made his international debut in Sri Lanka. He, he got Dick Weller out in his first spell as an international bowler, um, bowling a 88-mile-per-hour short delivery that was too good for him, basically. And there was a lot of excitement around him. Um, and, and that was before Joffre became eligible for England. And it was before Mark Wood had his, his resurgence as an international bowler. So for a short period of time, Ollie Stone was like the, the great English fast bowling hope for about two months before Hodge became available and Wood came along. Joe, that was, that was a very encouraging little burst. It was. Can I do my moment of the week now? Is that what I you're leaving? Moment of the week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, yeah, my moment of the week appears to have already been uh, expunged from history uh, in that it was in that second intra-squad match uh, where Johnny Bairstow, representing Team Morgan, uh, was bowled neck and crop by a really quick delivery from Ollie Stone of Team Butler, the ball nips back in, hits top of the middle and flies over the keeper's head. And then the ECB, as you'd expect, stick a clip of the dismissal on, on social media. It's a young English fast bowler, exciting dismissal. That's what people want to see. Uh, then, a little while later, the ECB seemed to think better of it and that clip disappears. The dismissal is expunged and you can make up your own mind about why that clip was taken down or who asked for it to be taken down. But it is the type of dismissal that we've seen a lot uh, with Johnny Bairstow in, in the past. Uh, then I noticed the dismissal wasn't even on Crick Info's scorecard because Bairstow came out to bat again. So I guess their system doesn't allow him to appear twice on the same scorecard. So we are left wondering, did this dismissal actually happen? There is no scorecard evidence. There is no video evidence that's been wiped. But on Oddie Stone, yeah, I mean, if he can stay fit, I do think he's a, a real contender for that World Cup squad. 
Uh, England's pace bowling is still a bit hit and miss in, in T20s. They don't really take wickets in the power play and they concede a lot of runs. Um, I know Phil, who picked his side for the first South African side um, of this tour, had Ollie Stone in there uh, with two other people. who One in the eye for the selectors there. Bill, you went with three players in your 11 who didn't make the initial squad, I think. <laughs> Was that the case? Yeah, well, they've, they've got to pull their socks up, haven't they? <laughs> so, the program. Um, Ollie Stone's a fascinating uh, proposition for England. Um, there is a, a kind of a slight fatalism around him. I mean, there was that infamous occasion, obviously, when he stamped on the ball and then lost a year of his career because he twisted his ankle. But when he has been on the pitch, initially for North Ants and then latterly, of course, for Warwickshire, uh, he's... he's He's torn it up everywhere he's gone. There was that season, Joe, was it 2018, when he, he had this absurd average of about 10 or 11 or something like that for 40-odd wickets. Again, he only played half a season, I think. Was it 2018? I think when they got Warwickshire promoted and his strike rate was something like the highest ever in a championship season. It was some, something ridiculous like that. Yeah, and, and this was in Div 2, admittedly. But, but wherever he's gone, he's, he's shown that he has serious uh, pedigree. Uh, and England, whenever he's been fit, he's always been, been brought back into the fold. Um, he, he bowled, as Joe, Joe says, he bowled, he bowled fast the other day. Um, and he has the physical components to be an international cricketer. He's 6'3", 6'4", he's broad-shouldered, he's, he's loose-limbed sufficiently, and he can, he can hit that 90-mile-an-hour mark with bounce as well. He's, he, he, he reminds me when I see him a bit of an early Stuart Broad with an extra couple of mile, mile per hour behind him. Um, very straight approach to the crease, high action, uh, bowls naturally short of a length and gets a little bit of steepling bounce as well. Um, it, it's all about fitness with him. But if he can stay fit and have a proper season of it, uh, then he's absolutely in the mix. And, and whisper it, England know what they need next year, next winter. They know what they need. They need pace and bounce on those tracks in Australia. Um, and he's, he's a name that will be, to, will be spoken about, without a doubt, among, the, among the, the top brass of English cricket. It will take a serious departure from his, the, the route of his career so far for him to be uh, considered for, well, certainly the Ashes and even the T20 World Cup seems a stretch based on his fitness record. Because, I mean, he's, he's 27. He's only played 38 first-class games, 51 T20s. You compare that with, say, Jofra Archer. He's already played 112 T20 games. Sure. In terms of matches, Stone's career is still only getting started, despite the fact that he's approaching what should be his peak as a fast bowler. So England, yeah. I think, will give him every every chance, but it but it can't be any more than a chance given on given his record so far. No, you're right. But then someone like Mark Wood, and there is probably an element of self preservation there with him. But when I've spoken to him about it, he said, "Well, if you if you look at it as miles on the clock, then." someone like Wood, who's not played an enormous amount of first-class cricket, has got a lot more cricket to play. Uh, someone like Stone can also maybe make that case that if a body can only contain a certain amount of overs ac across a career, then he's got plenty of overs in front of him. Um, so it's possibly just as much value to look at the, the number of matches that they've played as a, against the age that they actually are in the game. Um, yeah, it's, it is a long shot. Of course, it's a long shot for that Ashes tour. But then Ashes tours are famous for long shots, famous for beanpole fast bowlers emerging from, from nowhere and, and, and having a say in, in proceedings. Mm. But we shall see. You also mentioned Livingston, Joe, as one of my other picks who's not even in the squad. <laughs> um, he's another intriguing cricketer. He's a combustible kind of edge of the, 
on the seat of your pants kind of kind of cricketer really, and he bowls cheeky, uh, sort of spiky, flat off breaks with the odd leggy in there as well, and he and he he shoots from the hip and hits from the hip. Um, he's he's in the one day squad, but again he's he's a definite T20 option for England. And as you talk about Root and that second spin option. Uh, well, he also is definitely in that in that equation. So they've got lots and lots of different options here, England. Yeah, I mean, England rarely feel a full-strength T20I side, so they finally have to deal with the problem of squeezing all their brilliant top-order options into a top six or seven. And it looks like Johnny Bairstow uh, will be the, the opener to drop down to the middle order. He batted at four in the second warm-up game, so that's one thing to look out for, as is also how South Africa start that series. Um, because of a couple of positive COVID-19 tests, they had a lot of their training sessions and inter-squad friendlies called off. And then when they got over that, uh, their first training session was then rained off. So they played very, very little cricket going into the series. Um, so England actually, despite being the away side, might have the upper hand at the start of the series. Moving on, um, Joe, you've written a piece for wisdom.com this week that talks about how England might need to manage their workloads, the workloads of their players in 2021. Just how packed is is the 2021 schedule looking at the moment? Obviously, not everything's confirmed. Uh, very, in short. Uh, I knew it was, but then when I started doing this piece, uh, I, I did start to start to worry a bit. Um, I mean, the ECB have talked about the, their concern about the welfare of their players, and, and I believe them in that, but it is hard to see how they can, they can balance the priorities with the um, kind of mental and physical strain that it's going to put on their players this year. Uh, to put it in context... It's quite likely this year that England will play 17 test matches uh, in 2021, sorry, um, with, an, with an 18th immediately in 2022 in, in Sydney. Um, and to put that in context, that's the most that England have ever played in a calendar year, equals their record of, of I think, from 2016. The difference, of course, next year is that they're also trying to win a T20 World Cup and a lot of the players are involved in, in all of those um, projects, if you will. So how... How do you pick and choose? When do you tell Ben Stokes, for instance, that, all right, well, you're going to have to sit out a test match. Which, which test match does he set out? Does he t- I can't see him missing one against India or Australia. Um, he got, he's got to play a lot of T20 games and lead up to the T20 World Cup. There is actually an argument, I'm not necessarily saying they should do it, but there is an argument to say that Ben Stokes should be retired from ODI cricket for 2021 because there is just too much cricket for him to play. Now, I don't want to see that happen. England fans certainly don't want to see that happen. They don't want to pay... 100 quid for an ODI ticket and then Ben Stokes doesn't play because he's being rested. But there is too much cricket for Ben Stokes, Joss Butler, um, Joffre Archer to play all these games next year and hope to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, so I do, I do have concerns. On, on the flip side, it's a hugely mouth-watering year of, of cricket, which England could achieve so much. But I do, do feel we're reaching a breaking point. Um, and... It would be a real shame if we do reach that breaking point, England don't achieve what they should do and their players get it in the neck for underachieving. And actually, you look back at the schedule and think, well, were they just being asked to, to do too much? Mm. And also, Tar, looking ahead to, to, those, to, to, those test, to those 17 or 18 test matches that Joe mentioned, part, part of the challenge is who those tests are against. Uh, nine back-to-back tests against India and then five against Australia. What- I will just say one thing. Uh, and it's bringing it back to the whole point with Joe Root um, in that we talk about what value Joe Root could bring to that T20 team. But um, there's also the non-cricketing argument that 
he needs to manage his workload where England really need him is England's T20 side is in many ways fine without him England need him at his best in, in test cricket and so when you're looking to next year um, if you're a member of England's management I mean the whole the most practical thing would be to just say let Joe Root focus on on that um, he's despite Ben Stokes's obvious brilliance over the last two years Joe Root is still England's best test batsman um, and so you get him to focus on that just because of how insane that workload's going to be in 2021. Then, then obviously the question comes to the likes of Archer, Butler and Stokes, how you manage those guys. But, I mean, uh, thinking about what, what Joe was saying about retiring Stokes from ODI cricket in 2021, I mean, <laughs> there might be the possibility that Ben Stokes doesn't play an ODI um, for two, three years. He's not played since the 2019 World Cup final. I mean, that's, that is quite ridiculous. A link to that, Phil, the, the ICC named its new chairman this week, Craig Barkley, who joins him from New Zealand. Um, and your moment of the week is an interview with him on ESPN Quick Info, where he talks about packed schedules. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't uh, start the show with this because we'd lose whatever listeners we have. Um, it's, it's cricket administration, folks. Um, buckle up. But this is, this is significant. This is the new ICC chairman, Greg Barkley, um, uh, a commercial lawyer from New Zealand um, who has latterly been chairman of New Zealand cricket and has been on the board since 2012. Um, he's involved as well with rugby league, international rugby league chairman as well. Both of those roles are going to be dissolved now that he's got the big gig with the ICC. And he's given a, a long and in-depth interview to Daniel Brettig on ESPN Crick Info, um, which is well worth reading. And while one has to take take all of this with a degree of, of, of caution, because we know how the political machinations of the ICC tend to work, um, you couldn't have asked for a, a more positive collection of sound bites from, from this fella. Um, it's an interesting appointment because, in part because of his nationality, New Zealand kind of occupy a kind of neutrality in, in the world game, I think, and, and he's, he's reflective of that. It was by all accounts, a pretty strained and laborious and quite a controversial six-month period before they could finally, as a member state, settle on Barclay as the right person to take them forward as chairman. Um, and he acknowledges that himself in this interview. He says it would be fair to say there was a clash of agendas among uh, the, the key member states, which meant that it suited some directors not to get a decision and to kick the ball down the road, keep the can along the road as, as long as possible. But they have now finally settled on this, this, this fella. And, and he was very interesting. He was alluding, actually, Joe, to what you were saying about the unsustainability of the schedule. He was absolutely, this was at the top of the show, really. This, is, this was his central point that um, too much is asked of cricket, cricketers and the, the kind of the culture around cricketers too much is asked of them and it is unsustainable and eventually you will get those, those fissures, if you like, between uh, you know, international responsibilities and individual f franchise options. And in order to maintain a world game, the level of cricket, the amount of cricket that's being played has to be looked at and considered over the next couple of years. Uh, this flies in the face of his chief executive, uh, Manu Sawney, so there may well be a clashing of heads at some point down the line when it comes to that. 
but he, he was he was very clear on that. Was Barkley, and he was very clear as well about the the need to spread the game globally to take potentially global ICC tournaments even into the USA, um, which is uh, a market which he has flagged up and an obviously untapped but potentially lucrative and fruitful market for the game. Uh, he 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 covered off various various elements of the. Of, of the modern game, unpalatable elements of the modern game and sought to try and flatten them down. So the notion of the big three, the power grab of the big three, the famous infamous big three power grab, which has been in fairness rolled back by his predecessor, uh, Manahar, who left his post six months ago. Barclay has echoed Manahar's distaste for the, for the power of the, of the big three. He said that they're all in, intensely important members of the ICC's top table, but no more or less important than any of the others. And I think that will be important. It's an important message to spread around the game, I think. Um, he says, there is no, quote, there is no big three to me. They're just members of the ICC. They are individual members of the ICC, but they're just as important, but no more than anyone else. Now, we will have to see over the next year or two how much of this is 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 playing to the gallery and how much of this is 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 absolutely substantial stuff. But... For, a, for an opening gambit from an ICC chairman, it's a very important uh, interview, I think, and it's well worth cover, covering and reading if you are that way inclined. Ultimately, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is the ongoing strained issue of how the modern game fits itself around the requirements of players, uh, individual member state setups, and of course, TV revenues as well. It's all thrown into the mix, and he covers a lot of it in this interview in a cautiously optimistic way, I would say. So worth looking at. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he was up against um, a, a man called Imran Kawaja, who's from Singapore, who has been a champion for associate cricket for a long time. And Kawaja wanted more IC tournaments because that gives associates more money because associates are involved in the bigger IC tournaments like T20 World Cup, etc. Is, is there not a danger if you have uh, an IC chairman saying that they want uh, fewer international tournaments that just gets filled by, with more bilateral cricket that that might not benefit just the big three, but effectively benefits the bigger, more established countries? It's a good question. The phrase that Barclay used was he wants to ensure optimum cricketing outcomes. And reading between the lines, and in fact, there is an actual quote, whether it's six, seven, eight or nine global ICC tournaments, uh, in, in a run, he says he doesn't have a preference, which is a clear nod to, as, as you say, uh, his key opponent in this, in this race to the championship. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But his point, his overall point, is that the game itself, the quality of the fair has to be maintained. And there is a concern around uh, listless cricket, I think. And I think most people feel this, most cricket lovers feel this, that too much cricket can feel routine, and that you're going through the motions. Um, bilateral cricket has historically been the lifeblood of the game. And from a personal point of view, it remains the lifeblood of the game. I get more in, interested in bilateral cricket than I do occasional world, world tournaments, personally. And his quote is that bilateral cricket is the lifeblood of the game. Now, his point overall, from what I can gather, is that we've run the risk of fewer and fewer bilateral series taking place as countries move towards silos and so you have fewer uh, you have your, your marquee test series of course you do but you have fewer of these other test series now if we can maintain a financial model that enables more of these bilateral series to be played 
And there's not going to be a significant reduction in the number of ICC tournaments. It only really hinges from what I can gather on the reintroduction of a Champions Trophy tournament. So it's not like we're losing World Cups or World T20s or anything like that. Um, the, how the money is disseminated across the board remains the million dollar question with the ICC. But I don't get the sense from this fellow from reading this piece that he will be another, um, another puppet for, for the big three to maintain the, the kind of financial iniquities that have dogged the game over the last few years. Uh, the impression I get from this piece is that his, his philosophy is one of a, of a broadening and more globalised game uh, and that he will attempt at least to try and square those, uh, those conundrums for, the, for the, the good of the overall game. But we shall see. No, that's really interesting. Moving on, um, India's blockbuster tour of Australia kicks off with a three-match ODI series this week. Um, we, we could see the debut of the highly rated all-rounder Cameron Green, who we talked about on the show quite a bit over the last few weeks, but Justin Langer has said that he'll only be selected if he's fit to bowl. Um, Tar, it's a big series for Glenn Maxwell. It always seems to be a, a big series for Glenn Maxwell. Um, well, um, so Maxwell, the last we saw of him in ODI cricket was that series against England. Uh, where he ran it off without innings, where he just peppers Adil Rashid for sixes, uh, rescues Australia to an improbable win. Uh, then he goes to the IPL uh, and doesn't hit a single six in the tournament for Kings Eleven Punjab. Um, so we're back to the whole Ben Maxwell question. Um, he's he's in the side as as a number seven now, um, which is a really interesting role because um, uh, you just expect him now to sort of to be the man who just tees off all the time and yet uh, he's coming into it in a sort of horrible run of form um, but that's that's the whole allure of Glenn Maxwell you never really know what you're going to get um, allure, allure is one word for it I, I look at Glenn Maxwell and I just think he's always going to be three games away from cracking it and then he'll then he'll retire when he's 37 yeah. um, Maxwell's been playing for years and the conversation <laughs> it never really moves along I mean he made that totally brilliant 100 against England um, you know, in an empty ground at the end of that summer. And that was meant to be his kind of graduation innings. Um, but you can guarantee, based on everything that you've seen before, that there'll be one, one and a half steps forward and then three steps back. But I say, I say it a little from the perspective of a neutral. If I was an Australian fan, I'd be infuriated by it. Yeah, but they love him, don't they? They, they adore him. He can do no wrong. He, he, he <laughs> occupies that kind of unimpeachable position that certain cricketers, by dint of charm or personality or whatever it is, they, they are untouchable, despite the fact that they don't actually really deliver with bat or ball very often. Well, you say that, but then he's also, in many ways, he kind of comes up across as sort of an anti-establishment guy. Exactly, you know, elements of a larrikin. That's why they love him. That's why Jeff and Adam can, can see no wrong in what is a rather irritating and flattering to deceive kind of cricketer. But then I can say that. It is worth remembering that his last innings was a, a truly great ODI 100 that rescued his side from uh, 70 for five to chase down 300 um, against a very good England team. I did just wonder if number seven is too low. I know he scored that 100 from number seven, but I think he's so good. You kind of want him to, to get in and construct proper innings rather than just being the guy who you're expecting to, 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 to go mad from, from ball one. From an Indian perspective, it's potentially um, an enormous career-defining tour for Kale Rahul. So he in the absence of Rohit Sharma for the White Bulls series, will be the India vice-captain. He may well be opening the batting too. Um, he's keeping wicket with no Rishabh Pant being there and with Kohli out the last three tests and Rohit Sharma out the first two tests. 
there may be an opportunity for him to improve on his test record, which currently stands at averaging 35 from 36 test matches. Joe, he's got, he's got all the talent in the world. He's, he's 28 now. How, how big do you think the, the next couple of months could be for Rahul? Uh, really big and, and particularly so uh, looking ahead to that test series with, with Kohli going home after the, after the first match. Um, Pujara has not been, sorry, talking about the test series now, but Pujara has not been in fantastic form since that brilliant series in, in Australia. Um, so a lot's going to depend on him and, him and Rahul. I was surprised he was 28. I thought he was a couple of years younger than that, to be honest. Um, his ODI record as well is, is really strong. I mean, averaging is 48. Um, but he, he's never, you're never quite sure where his, his best role is. He's, been, he's moved, been moved around quite a bit, batting in that middle-order role, which doesn't necessarily suit him. Uh, but now he's, he's got that kind of, he's starting to get that aura of more of a kind of kingpin in that Indian side and that the vice captaincy kind of adds to that. Uh, so I think, yeah, it'll be massive. That, that, I think Australia are going to find it tough in this, in this ODI series to start with. We think the Indians, the frontline Indian batsmen all pr- had pretty productive IPLs like Dawan, Kohli, Shriya Agarwal, Rahul, all, all got runs, whereas the Aussies didn't look great. Aaron Finch ended up getting dropped, didn't he? Steve Smith, Fair enough, T20 is not perhaps his format in the way that he's such a good ODI batsman, but looked a bit rusty. Taha says Maxwell didn't clear the ropes once in the whole tournament. Um, so I think India would start favourites for me in, in, the, in the 50 over stuff, although I do think Australia will come, come on strong in the Test Series. Yeah, just on Rahul, OK, it's, it's IPL cricket, um, but we, many of us would have been, or some of us on this panel would have been at the at the Oval in 2017, 18, I can't remember. Anyway, when he made 170 on that final day, and that was a high, high class innings ended by a stunning delivery, incidentally, by Adil Rashid. Uh, but if you combine what, he's, what he does in 20 over cricket, where he looks like, a, like an icon cricketer, and Joe, the right term, he does have an aura around him now in that form of cricket. And then when you, con- when you consider as well what he's capable of doing on a day five pitch in a test match against a good quality test match attack, and then you look at the way that he constructs his runs. I mean, there is a classicism to his game. He stands tall, he, he plays, it, plays in the right way, but he also has enough funkiness and enough, enough modern day sparkle to combine those two approaches. You look at it and you think there's every reason why at 27 now, he, can't, he may well become India's... India's next next real gun cricketer. Now I know they've got a thousand young batsmen hoping to take that claim, but but he 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 has he has the the components. I think Raul. I think he's a fabulous player to watch, uh, and it'll be interesting, as Joe says, to see where he does bat in that Test match side because he will play in that those Test Test matches. Probably unlikely that he'll open, but I can see that he could do a job in Australia as an opener. And Laxman made runs as an opener out there as a sort of tall, willowy kind of opener. Um, I could see him and, and Prithvi Shaw poten- uh, and Agarwal potentially opening. And Prithvi Shaw, he's not been in great form, um, admittedly, in 20-over cricket. Uh, he might be possibly the one to miss out. But Rahul will play. Uh, and, and I fancy him to become, over the next year or so, one of the big, big players in world cricket. I think he's that good. Moving on to New Zealand West Indies. I don't think we've ever talked about Devon Conway on the pod before, who is in the <coughs> New Zealand T20 squad. He's 29, he's South African-born, moved to New Zealand at 26 after not really making it in the South African de- domestic game. Um, he did quite well in the, like, the tier two level of South African first-class cricket, but not the, the top tier. Um, but his record since moving to New Zealand is, is just ridiculous. So 
He was the top run scorer in their List A competition last winter. He, he has been the top run scorer in their T20 competition for the last two seasons. And he's been the top run scorer in their first class competition for the last three seasons. Um, he's only in the T20 squad. I guess New Zealand do have quite a settled top six, top seven in the test stuff. So quite a hard side to break into unless you're an opener, I guess. Um, so he's one to keep an eye out on. And, and looking further ahead into the New Zealand home summer, um, Pakistan have been issued uh, a final warning from New Zealand's health department um, for breaches of uh, COVID restrictions and leaving bubbles, etc. Um, six Pakistan players have tested positive for COVID-19 uh, to, to give a sense of where New Zealand is at with COVID-19. Uh, an area of Auckland went into lockdown after just one positive case a couple of weeks ago. So uh, fingers crossed that, that series can still go ahead. Before we go on, a word about the Wizen Drinks collection. Uh, last week, I spoke about the Wizen Ale gift pack. This week, I'm going to quickly talk about the spirits on offer. We partnered up with the Oxford Artisan Distillery to produce Wizen Limited Edition Gin, Vodka and Rye. I went down to the distillery a couple of months back to sample the rye. Uh, it is really quite nice. I was also a fan of the gin. Um, I'm just going to read out the description of the gin. Uh, this is a classic juniper forward gin crafted from 12 carefully collected, selected botanicals and delivering bold notes of juniper, pine and citrus, along with a hint of aromatic spice and a lasting complexity. Centerpiece to the perfect aperitif ahead of that special meal. Head to wisdom.com forward slash shop to get yourself a friend or a family member a bottle. Moving on to the BBL. Last week, the BBL announced a raft of new rules that are quite something. I'll quickly go through them um, just in case you've not heard them before. Number one, the power surge. The power surge is a two over period during which the fielding team is allowed only two players outside the inner fielding circle. The batting side can call for this at any point from the 11th over in their, in in their innings. The fielding restrictions replicate those of the usual power play at the beginning of an innings, which has been shortened to four overs. An X-factor player. An X-factor player is named as either the 12th or 13th player on the team sheet. They can come into the game beyond the 10th over of the first innings and replace any player who is yet to bat or has bowled no more than one over. And then this is the one that I have the most trouble with. The bash boost will be a bonus point awarded halfway through the first innings. The team chasing will see the bonus point if they're above the equivalent 10 over score of their opposition while if they're trailing, the fielding side will receive the point. Teams will also now be awarded three points for winning the match as opposed to the traditional two. There's, there's quite an interesting interview with Trent Woodhill, one of the brains behind the new rules in the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, Woodhill said that Quick Australia's research found that games are effectively decided at the six over mark and there's little change in the run rate in overs five and six. In last season's big bash, teams that were no wickets down after six overs were victorious in 80% of games when batting first, and they won every single match batting second. If they had lost three or more wickets by that point batting first, they won 33% of games, uh, and they did not win at all if chasing. He said, we're, we're noticing games getting killed off when that happens. Joe, thoughts? I was hoping they weren't going to come to me, yes. Uh, my <laughs> thoughts are that, well, actually, they're not my thoughts. They're the thoughts of Andrew Miller, our columnist. So I'm just going to steal his thoughts. Um, he made the point uh, in his latest column for, the, for our magazine that he thought this might be a, a reaction in some ways to uh, the BBL moving off free-to-air TV, therefore losing some traction with kids and now needing to kind of try and grab it back. Uh, 
which might ring a bell with some some things going on in English cricket. I think was the the point he was making. Um, I think the, the the X Factor sub thing sounds kind of nonsense to me. I mean, Jimmy Neesham, I think, tweeted that if that player is your twelfth or thirteenth, how much X Factor is he really going to have? Um, which I think is is kind of a fair point. Uh, I find it interesting when these rules come through these days, uh, or all kind of innovation in cricket. You see a real split in the English cricketing media, where I feel like some people, particularly fans of T Twenty, will lap up any change. Any change is something new and interesting. Uh, and there are the more kind of hardened, old-fashioned followers of cricket who are uh, against it just because it is change. And I guess I feel <laughs> end up somewhere in the middle, where I'm sort of intrigued by it, but also a little bit confused by it and would like it to stay more similar to how I remember T20. Because it's hard to keep up with as it is, isn't it, Yaz? You know, doing this show every week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of think that the um, the power surge I don't really have a problem with. That doesn't really change the game that much. Um, the X-Factor player, I kind of agree with Jimmy Nijin, I don't think it's going to make that much of a difference. With the bash boost and the reasoning behind it, I do have a problem with because... Woodhill is essentially arguing that he's got a problem with teams not losing wickets, then winning matches, and teams losing wickets, then losing matches. Like that, that's just the game of cricket. Like, no matter how many rules you change, that's not going to change the, the effect of losing wickets and not losing wickets. Phil, Taha, any thoughts? Any strong opinions on this one? Yeah, it's all a load of bollocks, isn't it, really? <laughs> I don't see any reason to tamper with the traditions of the, the T20 game. <laughs> Excellent. Moving on to that new issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly that is out today. Head to wisdom.com forward slash wisdom dash cricket dash monthly to get hold of a copy. There have been some great covers this year, but I, I genuinely think this one tops a lot. So check it out if you haven't seen it already. So it's a special issue on pace bowling. And as we mentioned the last time you were on the show, you spoke to the quickest of the lot, Square Actor. What did he have to say about bowling fast? Well, he just wanted me to know how much it hurt bowling that quick. Um, there was a lot of talk about, like, he would wake up and his, his, he would sit in a hot tub for half an hour and it'd take him two hours to sort of get out on the ground. And there was a lot of... So I'd, I sort of asked him about his rivalry with Brett Lee and was, was quite interested in finding out whether there was anything there. And the, the thing was, well, no, the rivalry was just with me and my body. And so yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of that. Um, one, one of the one of the things that didn't actually make the interview uh, was I sort of asked him if he if he bowled, he felt he bowled quicker than that hundred miles per hour ball, uh, which is still the record, hasn't been beaten seventeen years since then. And he claims he did, um, and I don't know whether that's true or whether he just felt that he bowled quicker at times. Um, but he he mentioned his first ever five four he took in international cricket was against South Africa in 1998. And he felt that that was probably the quickest he'd bowled. Um, and so I couldn't, I, I, I was struggling to find footage of it um, for a while, but found it a few days ago. And if you watch it, it is, it is ridiculous. <laughs> like it's so quick. And I kind of, I kind of get where he's coming from now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great. It was just good fun uh, chatting with him. And he's always got interesting stuff to say, I guess. Yeah. At, one, at one point in the piece, he, he says how he never set out to hurt anybody and, and often felt bad if he did accidentally inflict physical pain on a batsman, which I'm not in any position to question, but it doesn't fully chime with the story that Steve Harmison once told me when he was bowling in the dark <laughs> to Durham 
and uh, a batsman, a county batsman, got on his wick and he bowled two flat ones at his head uh, about half past six uh, with no lights just before the end of play. Um, but that may have, may have must just have, just have slipped. Must have just have slipped, no doubt. Well, Steve Kirby it was. Steve Kirby it was. It doesn't necessarily mean, mean he enjoyed doing that, though, Phil. I think that's his point. He, he saw it as a necessary thing to have done, yeah. um, which, again, is debatable. Um, but he, he didn't enjoy doing it one bit. Yeah, it's our, uh, there, there are a few YouTube wormholes that are more enjoyable than Shreve Actor between, like, 98 and 2002. Uh, I'd highly recommend looking up the pair of sixes, I think, he took against New Zealand in the space of, like, three weeks in 2002. Uh, I think like nine of the 12 wickets he took in those two spells were, were just Yorkers that were way too quick for the batsman. Um, and, and the series of slower balls as well against England in that series, up just after the Ashes 05, where he, he basically won a, won a three-test series on the back of a bunch of slower balls. Um, just marvellous. Probably the most box office bowler of our generation, I would say. Um, and it's a wild, mercury, crazy interview that he gives to Taha. He steers it very stylishly as ever, I have to say. Joe, you were telling me that you spoke to someone who argued that bowlers uh, may have already peaked in terms of reaching uh, the, the maximum speed a human being could hurl down a cricket ball for someone 22 yards away. Yeah, can you kind of explain that? I'm not expecting a ridiculous <laughs> scientific my, explanation. I can do my best, Yaz. Um, this was really testing my brain doing this piece, not my natural areas, it has to be said. But yeah, I spoke to um, a guy called Paul Felton, who's a lecturer in biomechanics at Nottingham Trent Uni, who's worked with ECB quite a lot over the last 10 years or so. And he, to put it simply, he thinks the restrictions of the human body mean we're not going to see male fast bowlers get any quicker than they are now. Uh, he says Brett Lee has the optimal technique for bowling quick. Every aspect of him is what you want in a fast bowler. But for various reasons that are kind of too technical for me to explain, he believes that technique has essentially reached its limit, that we can't get much quicker over however much time passes, we'll still be looking at that limit. He says he thinks for someone to go beyond uh, Shoaib's record, they'll have to have a kind of Malinga or Mitchell Johnson slingy style action, but be freakishly strong alongside that. So essentially someone we've not seen in the game before. He thinks that's the only way that he can see someone going beyond Shoaib's record. Uh, but he says the potential for women's fast bowling is has hardly been explored at all. Very, very few f studies on it. Most of them have been related to injury rather than pace. Uh, again, he thinks restrictions on, of the human body mean we're unlikely to see women go much beyond 80 miles per hour. But he does think it's an area kind of ripe for more research and exploration. And uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, that I'd spoken to Izzy Wong, who's a English teenage tearaway who's kind of made it her mission to be the first woman to break the 80 mile an hour barrier. Uh, it's been her mission since she was a kid, basically. She, she told the Warwickshire development coach that's what she was going to do. She's told the England fast bowling coach that's what she's going to do. She's been clocked at 72 so far. She's still only 18. Uh, she's not having a full season of professional or senior cricket behind her. So there's, there's much more to come from her. Uh, and England will be excited to get her involved as quickly as possible, I think. And any, any other highlights in the magazine that you want to talk about, Phil? Maybe your, your chat with Matt Parkinson? <laughs> yeah, all right. Nicely done. Um, there, is a, there is a feature by, by me on, on leg spin and England's ongoing uh, fraught and rather confused relationship with it and where, where leg spin stands, not just in the English game, but in the world game as well, as we, we look at the 
diminishing numbers of leggers, especially in a test match level, with the exception of Yasir Shah and a bit of Shadab Khan, there aren't many going around. Um, and I lent on a particularly insightful interview with Matt Parkinson for some of this piece done by your good hand. Yes, indeed. Um, and Parkinson, you can, you, can, you can take it up from here, but Parkinson is a star of this show, first of all. It's fair to say that he's, he's a favourite on this show. Um, but he speaks with unusual maturity and understanding, I think, of his craft, considering he's still just a young lad making his way in the game. What do you think, Yazine? Uh, I thought it was very interesting on uh, the type of leg spinners that he looks up to. So uh, w- when people talk about like how leg spinners dominate T20 cricket and how important they are, we kind of lump them all into one group. Um, and Parkinson said that he doesn't really look at Rashid Khan as someone who he aspires to be like. He said Rashid Khan bowls 60, 65 per hour, flat, predominantly googlies. His go- Rashid Khan's googly turns a lot, but his leg he doesn't. There's quite an entertaining... Uh, argument on Sky between Nasser Hussain and Shane Warne this year, I think, about like, does Rashi Khan turn the ball? Like, Nasser was adamant that he doesn't. Um, and Parkinson was talking about how he looks to someone like Adil Rashid or Yuvendra Chahal as someone who like really tosses up uh, and, and really rags it as, as somebody that he aspires to, to be like. He talks very well about um, how, many, how important it was playing club cricket as a youngster, having captains that trusted him. Uh, he puts a, quite a lot of his confidence down to just bowling loads of overs as, as a teenager, basically playing not even one's cricket, but like two's cricket as a teenager. Um, so it's very interesting. And I guess he's an interesting case study in that he's got a very good first-class record. He's been picked for in, two England test tours, but he's not played that much first-class cricket and he's 24 now. And he's not bitter about that. He's understanding, he's understanding that Lancashire have a brilliant seam attack and the pitches in England just don't really suit spinners and unless you uh, with, with with a couple of notable exceptions um so his case study is is quite interesting and also he himself is quite interesting and a very good speaker as well so um, i look forward to reading that and yeah phil what, what else did you take away from that and that leg spin piece I, I think you sum it up i think you sum it up pretty well just going back to the this hoary old question about pace and lateral movement lateral turn that spinners get however you slice it Matt Parkinson is the slowest leg spin bowler in the world, slowest one day or T20 leg spin bowler in the world, and quite comfortably the slowest. Uh, he bowls, and this is according to Crickviz Stats, who, who helped me collaborate on this article. Um, he bowls an average in 20 over cricket of 47 mile per hour. Now, the next lowest on the, the list of, of current professional T20 bowlers is 50 mile an hour. So there's a, that's a significant drop uh, down to Parkinson's chosen, chosen pace, a natural pace. But while maybe alarm bells ring around that, that stat, and certainly initially when he came into the England team, there was a lot of discussion around in the commentary boxes about the pace that he was bowling and the right at optimum pace for international cricket. However, the flip side is that he turns it more than any other bowler out there considerably further than any other bowler out there. He turns it an average of five degrees. And the next biggest turner of the ball is Chahal, the Indian will-o'-the-wisp little leggy, and he turns it three degrees. So Parkinson turns it 40% further than the next biggest turner in world leg spin short format cricket. That's an extraordinary stat. Um, If he can pull it off, 
if he can combine those two extremes into something that works at that top level, and it certainly works at county level where his record is outstanding, if he can just take that next step up and do it in this particular style, then not only do you have a real technical outlier, but you also have this kind of glorious old-fashioned callback to how they used to do it, how Warren used to do it, how Kadir used to do it, how Richie Benno used to do it. The modern bowler is your Rashid Khan where he skims it through and he gets a tiny bit of lateral movement, if anything, but he does it for pace as much as anything. To take it to the other extreme and to be able to pull it off at top-level cricket will be one hell of an achievement if Parkinson can do it. Uh, but there is, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that he does stand a chance. So it'll be fascinating to see how he goes. He's inexplicably not in this squad for England at the minute. I guess, all right, South African pitches and so on. Uh, but you hope that he'll be on the, the Sri Lankan Test Map Tour. Uh, uh, and we can, we can wait and see where his, his singular career takes him from there. Mm. Um, and Joe, do you want to quickly run through what else we should be looking out for in this mag? I, I do. Yeah, I do very much. Um, so one interview on a flag was uh, as part of our pace special was uh, with John Snow uh, by John Stern. Uh, John Snow was a great English fast bowler of the 60s and 70s, who's really been kind of quite elusive and faded from view since his retirement. Uh, and he generally likes it that way. Uh, but John Stern has persuaded him to, to come out of hiding for a chat. And it's a really, it's even though the bloke retired in the late 70s, it's quite a, a fresh conversation because he's not a man you hear from much in, in cricketing circles. Uh, his thoughts on fast bowling, uh, his reflections on his, on his career, which he, he did very much his own way. Um, and uh, a little bit on Joffrey Archer, who he has seen at Sussex, uh, where he used to, where Snow used to play himself. Uh, it's an interesting one. It, it was a bit of a gap in my knowledge. I mean, I knew him as a, as a, as a fast bowler, as a number, but I didn't know much about his career, which is odd for a guy who took 200 test wickets at, a really, really good average as well. Um, one of England's greats. Uh, and another one uh, from, from back, back in the 60s was Phil spoke to Ted Dexter. Uh, I'm not sure we're really hitting up our podcast audience here with Ted Dexter and John Snow, but we're going to plow on regardless. But This is amazing. This is amazing. I remember walking into the office oh, quite a long time ago now because it was when uh, we used to go in the office regularly. Um, and Phil was on the phone to someone uh, and I couldn't really work out who it was. And then eventually worked out that it was Ted Dexter. Um, <laughs> I think he mentioned it a few days before. And it was like an extraordinary what, hour and a half conversation. He, he, he's, he's in love with Zach Crawley. That's what I took away from it. <clears throat> yeah, that, that's the, the modern podcasty takeaway. Uh, yeah, he <laughs> thinks that he first saw Zach Crawley make a 30-odd in a county game. And so he's still very, very much involved in watching, watching English cricket. And he just thought he was a cut above. Um, and then he got out and the next two or three times he saw him, he kept getting 20s, 30s, 40s and then getting out. But he, he was sure that there was something magical going on there. And, he, and he, he says he's as good a young player that he's, he's seen in an English shirt for a very long time. He also had some, some rather lament, well, some sad words about, about Joe Root's um, plateauing as well. And, and some interesting stuff about, from a technical perspective, about Joe's, Joe's test match game at the minute regarding footwork and backlift and so on. And Dexter, fa Dexter famously had one of the most uh, watertight techniques in, in the game back in the 60s. He was never hit, never hit at all, despite playing without a helmet against Wes Hall, Charlie Griffiths and the rest. Um, and I asked him why, and he said, because I had a bloody good technique. 
and that was why. The only time he ever got hit was when he was working for the Daily Mirror, having retired, and he was uh, duped into facing Dennis Lilly in 1975 as an oldish or a middle-aged man. And Lilly was bowling in bouncers in the Lord's Nets for a, a story for the Daily Mirror. Um, and Lilly pinned him, pinned him on the ear, first ball, uh, with a bouncer that snaked back into him. He said that's the only time he was ever hit in his life, when he was about 48, working for the Mirror. The perils of journalism, maybe, I don't know. Anyway, it is, it is great fun. One of the all-timers, Ted Dexter. And just to add as well, uh, our stable of columnists is looking particularly strong as we head into the winter. We've added Isabel Westbury, uh, was it two months ago? Yeah. She's joined us and we've got Adam Collins, obviously our Australian correspondent who has, who has returned for the Australian summer, who uh, is feeling pretty chipper about Australian cricket's prospects. He's, he's tipped Australia to whitewash India. He thinks this is a new age of Australian dominance. Um, so let's, let's all hope he's wrong. I think he is, by the way, but we can discuss that test series down the line. Yes, we can. Um, that's it for today's show. Thanks to our Bill and Joe. This has been the Wizard Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends. And if you're feeling especially nice, why not leave us a five-star review in the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.